What is wrong with you? Okay, so psychology therapy counseling is literally designed to answer that question. What is wrong with my child? What is wrong with my marriage? What is wrong with my, me? What is wrong with me? There is, a, there is a shift going on in psychology and it's been going on a little, I'm gonna say under the covers for a minute, but it really is time to get this concept out there. And that is literally what is right. What is right exactly. with you? So exactly. here's here's what we're going to talk about on this show. My guest today is Gene Campbell, and Gene and I are going to be talking about what is right with you. Now, here's what I know. When I talk to parents at the Parents Weekend, one of the things that we are teaching them is going through their children's behavior and saying, yeah, it's been causing all this pain, it's been causing all this destruction. And once we get the parents to understand why a child makes a risky choice, the reason why they do, and the, the needs that are being met behind it, and the, the fulfillment that is coming, the payoff rather than the cost that the child is focusing on, one of the things we begin to realize is just how insightful the behavior is. So as I said, my guest today is Jean Campbell. She has been bringing together groups of people for over 25 years. She's a LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker, a board certified uh, trainer and practitioner of psychodrama, which I know at some point she and I are going to talk about this, uh, uh, group psychotherapy, and she's a somatic practitioner, which I happen to know a lot of about. And we're going to talk about learned optimism, positive psychology. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of Beyond Risk and Bass. My guest today is Gene Campbell. Gene, thank you so much for being here today. It's my great pleasure. Okay, let's talk a little bit about, let's, let's set the stage before we get into the meat and potatoes. Let's do some salad and dinner rolls. Why on earth are you working in psychology? What, what, what happened? How come you're here? What is, why are you doing the work you do? Give us, give us the nuts and bolts of how you started in this field. Well, like so many other therapists, psychologists, uh, so many people working in the mental health, uh, world. Uh, I came here because of my own story. That's how I ended up here growing up in an alcoholic household, eventually getting sober myself. Uh, and actually at one point in my own therapy, being at a turning point in terms of what direction I wanted to go with my professional life and my therapist at the time, who's a brilliant man named Dick Graycheck, who's still practicing in Connecticut said, well, people ask you for help all the time. You might as well get paid for it. And so <laughs> he was right. And so I left a very lucrative career in marketing and advertising and ended up, uh, getting a master's degree in social work at Fordham in New York. And continued to work my own recovery program and then landed in this wonderful modality called psychodrama and it was all life-changing and so coming at it from both the side of being a recovering person myself and a family member who grew up with a with alcoholism and addiction in my household i have a unique capacity to work with sort of both sides of the the dis-ease that we struggle with Sure. Now it says here that you work with Braveheart Retreats. Is this something, is this a, an organization you work for? Were you at the uh, w, WCSAD through Braveheart Retreats? 
Well, it's a company that I co-own with my colleague, oh, okay. Christine Ives, who's a wonderful therapist based in Santa Monica, California. Um, I have had had my own business for years before that Action Institute of California, where I focused primarily on working with professionals, teaching them how to effectively, ethically use psychodrama action methods, uh, somatic psychotherapy in their own practices. Um, and I had long had this vision of wanting to create a retreat center because there really isn't one on the West Coast where people, anybody, not just professionals, can come do their own personal work. There's a bunch of wonderful ones on the East Coast, but there's really nothing out here at this point. And so Christine and I teamed up. Hello, COVID. We teamed up and launched in February. And then as Lin-Manuel Miranda would say, the world turned upside down in March. Um, and, you know, we've been doing quite a bit of virtual work, but we're really chomping at the bit to get back into uh, the work in person because the, the power of a group and the healing capacity of a group is profound. I mean, the creator of psychodrama, Jacob Moreno, talked about how we're wounded in relationship and we have to heal in relationship. And maybe it's because I'm from a big family, but I'm more of a group worker than an individual worker. I love working with groups. Some people listening to this show, my audience in particular, may not know what psychodrama is. Uh, discuss that briefly, because I love it. I love it as a concept. I love the, the how the subconscious just emerges, lays itself out on a suntanning bed for all of, all of us to be blinded by. Um, and I guess an example that I can give uh, that's kind of a cutesy one is that when it snows here in Colorado, as it's want to do every now and then we take the kids from our facility outside and say, make a snowman diorama of your family. And holy moly, by the end of it, the kids are like, wow, did I really make that? Is that what you saw? So yeah. talk about it. So what you're talking about is a beautiful combination of using uh, techniques from art therapy, using sculpture sure. with psychodrama. Um, and so for those who don't know what it is, psychodrama is a modality that was invented, it'll be a hundred years next April. Most people think it's this newfangled thing. It's been exactly. around for a hundred years, uh, created by Dr. Jacob Moreno, who saw the power of taking what was going on in our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and putting it out on, literally when he did the work, out on a stage uh, for people to work with. And so instead of just talking about my struggle to stay clean and sober or talking about, if, you know, you're working with parents, for example, talking about the struggle to not pick up the phone and track every move of your child because you're terrified they're not okay, which I can have tremendous compassion for. But rather than just talking about, well, let's have somebody in the group. And mind you, we do a ton of warm up before this to create safety to create connection within the group. It's like this container, this crucible of safety that we've created, but I could have a parent choose somebody in the group to play the voice in their head that tells them that their kid's gonna die. I mean, that's a real fear that a lot of parents have, particularly folks who have kids who've been struggling with substance abuse issues or with mental illness issues, right? So rather than just, oh, I'm just gonna tell myself in that moment that I should just calm down, well, no, let's get that voice in the room and let's have a dialogue with it. And let's see if we can find some alternative voices or find some people, a community of people who can help me deal with that. You know, whether that's Al-Anon or CODA 
or a parent support group or whatever it is. Let's concretize that. Let's choose people to play the roles of those folks who can surround me and support me so that I don't lose my mind with the incredible levels of fear that I'm struggling with a day at a time uh, when I have a child who's struggling. Um, so um, yeah, in a nutshell, it's taking what's in our hearts and in our bodies and in our minds and putting it out on a stage to work with it and to try to find a different solution than what we've been doing. I remember having an experience at a uh, therapeutic seminar um, where the people were supposed to intuit um, the the voices in my head uh, that was keeping me away from moving forward in life, striving forward for a more successful business relationship. And as I'm walking towards my goal, just ignoring all the voices, this woman jumped out and went, you know, sucked in air through her teeth, which is the noise my mom <laughs> used to make right? there it is. growing up. Anytime I was like, hey, mom, I'm going to go jump off the roof. Right. And, and as a, as a born risk taker and a mom who is obviously very, you know, fretting about losing her child and on the, you know, the voices in her head, but that was the one that I literally, when I heard that and she did that, I stumbled and fell and was like, you know, it's not her fault. It wasn't that noise's fault, but it was my reaction to it that I suddenly became very, very conscious of. And like I said, it pulled the subconscious out for all to bear. And afterwards I was like, how did you know? She didn't even have children. How did you know to make that noise to me? She's like, well, that's some noise I make when I'm scared. It was just, oh my gosh, my mom's scared. She's not holding me back. So brilliant experience. And I'm so excited that, and, and I definitely want to talk more about psychodrama with you on a later show. Let's get into some of the meat and potatoes about what's right with you, because you used a term that as much as I do know about the field of psychology and therapeutics and recovery and addiction recovery and mental health, I had not heard the term learned optimism before. I still consider yeah. myself a layman. So let's break down learned optimism, positive psychology. I also know it as strength-based psychology. Are those the same thing? And what is learned optimism? So learned optimism is a term uh, that was coined by Martin Seligman, who is the father of the positive psychology. Um, he's written a number of books. If you Google him, you can find a ton of stuff out there. Um, and so the thing I love about positive psychology is that it's, it's actually very well researched too. We know it works. And so when we think about learned optimism, it's creating, it's almost like, you know how on Instagram you can create different filters that you can post pictures under. Right. It's like creating a filter of looking for what's right, looking for, looking for the good. One of my teachers in positive psychology, Tal Ben-Shahar, who also has a ton of books out there, who taught to this day the most popular course at Harvard, which was on happiness. Um, but Tala has always said, when you appreciate the good, the good appreciates. So when I start looking for the good, when I start noticing the strengths that I have and the strengths in other people, when I start looking for the positive things in my life, my focus will shift. I will see the world in a different way. And so a lot of times when people come into treatment, they go to therapy, frankly, it's insurance based, right? So We've got to have a diagnosis if somebody's using their insurance to pay for treatment. 
because unfortunately, the way our healthcare system is set up, we're not as focused on preventive medicine in this country. We're right. focused on treating what's wrong. But if we can have that shift in our perspective, then we can start to see the world in a very different way. So for example, when I was in, I did a year long course in positive psychology through the Whole Being Institute. And I was in a cohort of six, which was our small group amongst a group of, I don't know, 60 or 70 people. And we met periodically on Zoom before it was fashionable to meet on Zoom. <laughs> this was a couple of years ago. Um, but we had a group text that every day we had a pact with each other that we would text the whole group our best moment of the day. And so for me, living near the ocean here in Southern California, I often would post videos of just, you know, cranes floating in formation along the sky or the surfers or the sunshine. You know, most of the people in the group, uh, actually, I think everybody in the group was from California, North and South. Um, but there would be people posting things about a, a sweet moment they had with their child or a successful moment at work or a self-care moment where, you know, they went and worked out that morning when they didn't want to. And so it, the thing that, the, the, one of the concepts I love of positive psychology is the idea of a positivity boost. And it, it's based on the energetic, the neurological energetic connection we have between each other. So when something happens good in your life, I get a positivity boost. When I share with you something good that's happened in my life, the people around me get a positivity boost. Potentially, I mean, let's face it, there's some people who will be jealous. Hopefully they can do some work to shift that. They've got some trauma history that's leading to that. But I mean, I know a lot of people in the recovery world who have said they knew they had a shift when they genuinely felt happy for someone else in their life, when something good happened in their life. So that idea of having that positivity boost when anybody around me has a positive experience. You can use that in treatment, particularly if you're working in group settings, whether it's adolescents, adults, it doesn't matter. If something good happens for you, my filter of positivity gets clearer and stronger. And it takes work, right? It's like working out at the gym. This is not something that just magically happens every day. I have to look for it. And that's the thing is I'm building the muscle to actually look for it. A lot of times in treatment, I will train the staff to stop looking at what's wrong with this client. Stop using the term acting out. Let's call it a trauma response because that's what it is, right? Let's stop using these negative labels and let's look at, well, the good news is this kid was showing you that he needed help in the only way that he knew how to do it, but he was showing you that. Whereas in the past, he might have just disappeared and not said a word or not done anything to convey that. So a couple of things come up as we talk about this that I want to address for, for families, parents, and especially clinicians who are listening to this show because we're part of the West Coast Symposium on Addiction Disorders. Um, there's a couple things that come up. First of all, I don't think anybody would deny that this is going to be effective for the client themselves. They, they come in with depression, they come in with anxiety, they come in with trauma, abandonment, abuse, assault, um, something that has, has the dragons not just big in their life, but also inflated. It's, it's really been the focal point 
of everything. They become the identified patient of the family. Everybody in the family knows that, oh, poor, poor Jean, she's dealing with this and dealing with that. And don't talk about this during Thanksgiving. And now everybody's tiptoeing around Jean. Jean feels it psychically on and on and on. And it just builds and compounds. And it's the worst compounding interest as an identified patient, the black sheep of the family. Let me now pause I you go... right there, Aaron. Yeah, please. I want to pause you because this is so important. The family is the identified patient. Not any one be. person in the, well, the way I work, the family is. I'm trained as a systemic interventionist. That, that addiction cannot continue without, as my colleague Jim Tracy would call it, a sophisticated cast of enablers. You're, you're, you're 100% accurate. And as a facility, I, I will put dimes to dollars bet that no one intervenes on the family at the level that my, our child treatment program does. Nobody. So I'm in 100% agreement with you. Yeah. But I'm talking about how parents are seeing the issue, how, how more traditionally trained clinicians are saying, this child's acting out. You and I can both say till we're blue in a face, the child's behavior is their language. It's not an acting out. You and I both know that. But here's the point I want to get to. A child comes in, we're using strength-based. An adult comes in, we're using positive psychology and learned optimism, and we're getting them to focus on the best parts of themselves, seeing how these acting out behaviors, being the identified patient, is absolute brilliance as a strategy to get needs met. That even some of the most risky, intensive behaviors, suicide, and they wake up in the hospital, and they're surrounded by loved ones and doctors and caretakers, like... Every need, power, freedom, safety, connection, worth, they are all being met in such a maladaptive way. How on earth, despite how good the client starts to feel about themselves, do you make notes for insurance? And I, and I ask this because I have a group of staff that we, there is a language you have to have with insurance companies because they're not going to, you know, Person is very insightful. Person is getting needs met through learned behaviors that previously have been identified as malignant. Okay, they don't need treatment anymore. And they still do. They're not. So how do we translate? How do we have two languages? One for an insurance company, one for the family and the child. Well, I will preface this by saying I have not been in private practice in about 10 years. So I'm not okay. into But what I will it say- changed. What I will say is, as you're talking about this, my first thought about the language is relapse prevention. Yeah. It's all relapse prevention right. because until these, um, until these relapse-based behaviors are shifted, it's a matter of time before the family relapses and goes back to old behavior. It's yeah. a matter of time before right. the, the kid goes back to the old behavior. Because again, it's like a daily workout to change these behaviors. Yeah. You and I both know that. It's not something, yeah. it's not like you go to treatment or you go to the recovery rooms and it's like, poof, I'm cured, you know? Here, write some positive things on some sticky notes exactly. and put them and on your mirror. Good. You'll be fine. Right. <laughs> but even, I mean, let's think about this for a minute. Even in Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, you know, et cetera, when we get to a fourth step and we look at our resentments, we look at our fears, et cetera, the book tells us the first thing we should do is list our assets, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it does. How many people do you know who've done a fourth step where their AA sponsor, NACA, whatever, said to them, I want you to start by writing down your assets? Yeah, it, I, happen, it, it didn't happen with me. My first thing was tell me everything you did wrong and who you hurt. Exactly. And we'll get we'll exactly. get to the other part of the inventory later. Exactly. And that, that sucks. <laughs> well, and a big reason, I think, why we have such a high recidivism rate in treatment yeah. is you and I are on the same page about this. Insurance doesn't pay for family treatment. Right. Right. We have to be advocating for that in our in our individual states, with our governors, with our insurance commissioners, et cetera. But typically can't get reimbursement for that. So either the treatment center has to charge extra for it or eat it, right? But we know the value of that. And part of why the recidivism is so high is because we don't place the same demands on the family that we do with the client. Right. And you know, historically, when I've worked with families, when I do systemic interventions, which again, I haven't done in a really long time, but I still come at the world from that framework and philosophy. When I have a parent who calls me, you know, the kid's been discharged and they've been home for a couple of weeks and the parent calls me and says, my son hasn't been to an NA meeting in three weeks. My response is not, oh, well, you need to do to get him. But no, it's when was the last time you went to an R&R meeting? When was your last therapy session? Were you at your therapist this week? Have you followed through on it, right? So that accountability has to be there for the family because, and, and I'm, not a, I'm not saying any of this to blame the parents. I wanna be really clear about this. There has been multi-generational dysfunction that has been passed down to them. And even if they're doing better than the generation before them, which in most cases they are, they're still starting from behind the eight ball of course. I mean, we, we see that with epigenetics, that it's not just grandma was afraid of snakes. It's that that fear and trauma when grandpa almost died has actually altered her DNA, DNA, and that's been passed on to your child through you. Everybody go get help. Stop. <laughs> Everybody. Right. March. Right. All right, right. So so the second question that has come up with this is that tra- traditionally and, and, and contemporarily, Therapy is designed for you to focus on what's uncomfortable, to to stretch the edge, to to get into that discomfort and build that window of tolerance. Yes, resiliency builds through recovery from uh, whatever it is that's stressing and getting your neural modulators to start refiring and stuff, rather than shutting down and you going into a maladaptive strategy. Does strength-based and learned optimism avoid that process? Are you too busy being positive to actually make the person uncomfortable? Great question. It's not meant to be a bypass, right? So a key concept that we talk about in positive psychology is the idea of permission, having permission to be human, right? I mean, look at what's going on in our pandemic. We are being stretched so thin Right. And I can come out a lot of this from a somatic perspective as well, being a somatic experiencing practitioner. Everybody's doing yoga. <laughs> well, everybody's everybody doing the doing best them. they can. Right. Yeah. And some days it's about yoga. Some days it's about hitting the speed bag in your garage. Right. Because right. our natural instinct in a crisis is to go to fight or flight. Yeah. That's what our bodies want to do. And when we can't do that, when we can't complete that threat cycle, right? A threat comes at us, we go to fight or flight. When we can't complete that, we drop into freeze. And so people are depressed, 
people are, I mean, a lot of people are also irritated more than usual. A lot of people, I mean, I can't tell you how many posts I've seen on Facebook in the last week. Anybody else feeling like they wanna just run away to an island somewhere and never look back? I mean, there's the flight response, right? So when we look at learned optimism, it's not about saying, oh, just be happy, everything's fine. No, not at all. It's about finding the silver linings in all of this. And not in a, you know, pretending Pollyanna kind of way, but, you know, a lot of people I've talked to have said, I can't remember the last time I got to spend this kind of quality time with some of the people that I love because our lives were so busy before this started. Or like a lot of people I know in, in AA and NA, they're going to meetings all over the world, right? They're going to meetings in Europe. They're going to meetings in Australia and New Zealand. Like, Right. That wasn't happening because the meetings are on Zoom now, right? And so it's right. finding those, again, finding those best moments of the day in the midst of being human. And to me, sometimes the learned optimism also includes bursting into tears when I didn't have access to my sadness in the past. Being able to drop into the true feelings and not try to be like, okay, that cries over, everything's great now. No. But we also do know that tears are healing. They are, you know, we're clearing out our system. I'm going to break real quick to give a shout out to the silver sponsors of the WCSAD. And when I come back, I want to talk to you specifically about one of the big emotional pandemics, depression and positive psychology, because those two in my mind seem to, to butt heads. So hang on a second. I'm going to give a shout out real quick. Here we are working with each other and our, uh, uh, our knowledge, or in my case, lack thereof, to try to get as much information from the experts directly into the brains of the listeners of my show. To do that, I got to go where the experts are. And where the experts are in the mental health and addiction and recovery conferences that are held all over the world. I have been fortunate enough to fall in with a company called C4 Events, and they put on some of the best. These are not my words. This is not me getting paid. I am not getting paid to do any of these podcasts, let alone paid by C4. I do this because when I go to these conferences to promote my own business, Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or the podcast Beyond Risk and Back, what I hear from the guests, the speakers, and the sponsors is that C4 puts on the best events. So I have stumbled, fallen headfirst into becoming C4's podcaster for all of their conferences. This is the West Coast Symposium on Addiction uh, Disorders Conference. And to make these things go virtual, because we can't do them live, we still needed sponsors to show up. So this is the shout out to the silver sponsors who put up time, money, and energy to make sure that we could all continue to do our work and share the information, the latest, the updatest, the authors, the speakers, and the writers, and the therapists, and what they know about the world of addiction and mental health recovery. The silver sponsors are Discovery Behavioral Health, A Better Life Recovery, Dreamscape Marketing, Alchemies, the Guest House, Oceanfront Recovery, 
Origins Behavioral Health and Southworth Associates. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being a silver level sponsor for the WCSAD and to keep C4 events making this transition in this COVID world from the hotels and the conferences where I really wish we were, but here we are still doing them, still putting on these events and still getting this information to people all over the world. So thank you to our silver sponsors. Let's get back to Gene. Let's get back to the show and learn more about positive psychology. Okay, Gene. So let's talk about uh, <laughs> learned optimism and literal depression. And I'm not talking about the bad attitude. I'm not talking about the, the, the willingness kind of depression. I'm talking about the capability. We're talking about chemically, the brain's function and activity is depressed. We have told this person, let's go to the gym. Here's some vitamins. Let's go volunteer at the dog park. Let's, you know, you got to exercise. You get, let's eat a healthy meal. But what people are still missing is the fact that depression is a brain function, not an attitude. So how do you use positive psychology with a client who's struggling with depression? It's a great question. Um, there's a lot of, as I said earlier, there's a lot of research on positive psychology. I wanna preface this, I'm not an expert on depression. Um, I'm sure you have a ton of other people you're interviewing for the West Coast Symposium who are. Um, and I'll look forward to hearing them myself. Well, um, that's assuming there's anybody in California that's depressed. Of course, sir. <laughs> you don't want to go there. There's tons of us. I mean, I've had my own moments of it during COVID, sure. right? Sure. Um, but the first thing that comes to mind is uh, an exercise called the best possible self. And it, it kind of weaves into psychodrama for me as well. When I did my final project in my positive psychology course, I, I did an action-based example of the best possible self. And so it's basically an exercise, uh, and there's been tons of research on this, where people will sit and write for 20 minutes and imagine their best possible self. And so it's what in psychodrama we would call a future projection. So I'm thinking into the future about what my life might look like. Um, and I don't have the study right in front of me, but if memory serves me, the exercise was done. It was writing for 20 minutes a day. I want to say it was either three or four days in a row. And what the study found is that six months later, when they went back and checked people's moods, the level that their mood, they were able to sustain a positive mood all those months later from that exercise. And you know, anecdotally, when I've done this exercise and I've done it at quite a few of the leadership workshops I do, I have watched people completely change their lives, leave jobs, start their own businesses, get into relationships, get out of relationships. And so when I think about somebody who is depressed, um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about after watching a, uh, a seminar by Dr. Peter Levine, who created somatic experiencing, is the idea of, you know, depression really is a freeze in the nervous system. And so getting people into movement, that's one of the reasons we talk about exercise, but getting people into movement can help shift that freeze. There's also a bunch of research done by uh, a woman at, at, I think she's still at Harvard, named, uh, named Amy Cuddy, 
who um, created, did a whole bunch of research about this concept of power poses, what she calls power poses. And some of that no, is, I, what, right? She, she, has a, she has a TED talk. She does the she Wonder has a Woman. a wonderful TED talk. But, yeah. you know, getting, getting into the Wonder Woman position, right? With your hands on your hips and your shoulders right. back and right, or doing the V with your arms, right? Um, but even when I, when I teach about learned optimism versus learned helplessness, which is kind of the antithesis of it, I will often lead the audience through a very brief exercise where I will just have them imagine being depressed, step into depression, and just do a posture in their body of depression. And more often than not, people, their head goes down, their shoulders start to slump, right? There's a pulling in that happens in depression. And again, it's, I think, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not Gabor Mate, I'm not an expert in this physiologically, but when I think about the idea of pulling in, I think of freeze, right? I'm just, I'm shutting down, like I'm, I'm down-regulating and just, and then when I ask them to think about and step into the opposite of depression, whatever that means to them, for some people that may mean energized, for some people that may mean confident for some people that may mean happy, content, whatever, and now do a posture to represent that. People's heads come up almost immediately, right? And so when I think about working with depression through action, those are the kinds of things that I will do is let's explore what that depression feels like in the nervous system. And let's, you know, one of the concepts we have in somatic experiencing when we're working with that window of tolerance, right? I don't want to do too much too fast because then my system will shut down, right? But we kind of dance around the edges of it, right? And so when I think about learned optimism as well, a lot of times people can get into this binary thinking about I'm either depressed or I'm not. Well, if I'm depressed, it, for somebody who's never been depressed, this may sound crazy, but if I showered today, that's a huge accomplishment. If I ate well, or if I went to bed at you know, 11 o'clock instead of five in the morning, that's an accomplishment. And so part of what learned optimism does too, again, when we're looking for what's right, those little micro movements of change that are gonna help us shift this. And obviously I'm not a psychiatrist, but obviously if you are clinically depressed then you obviously need to see a good doctor who knows what he or she or they are doing so that they can can treat you the way you you're you know they got to work with you to see what to get the right medication and sometimes that takes time too which i know is really frustrating for folks i know who have a history of depression um, but it's not just one thing it's going to have to be the whole collective of things but the movement piece and getting out of that freeze even if that movement is just you know swinging your arms it doesn't have to be this 5 mile hike in the mountains <laughs> But I think a lot right, of people think that way. Like the only way I'm going to get out of this is to just gung ho. And it's, that's not realistic. It's not realistic. And it's a setup for failure, which increases the guilt spiral, which will, exactly. will plunge you deeper. Gene, as we're wrapping around here to the end, how are listeners going to get back in touch with you to follow up with your work, follow through with you, be able to show up to the talks and and your your guys' treatment center? Um, the I'm going to say it right, Braveheart Retreats, once you guys are able to open up and have people come in, how can people follow up with you? 
Our website is braveheartretreats.com. And just to be clear, we're not a treatment center per se. We are a retreat center. So it's not like people are coming to us for substance use disorder right. or mental health. It's more about um, our Bravehearted Living workshop, for example, will be uh, an opportunity for people to take a bit of a deep dive to maybe clear away some stuff that isn't working, try on some new behaviors, go back to the therapist they've been working with, for example. We've got workshops for couples. I do a lot of training for professionals. Uh, we do intensives for families, individuals, and, and couples. And also I do leadership workshops, particularly for folks in the behavioral health world. Um, but um, we are doing virtual work in addition to the in-person work that we will at some point get back to. Um, yeah, so thanks for asking. For asking. And that's at braveheartretreats.com. What about Facebook pages, Twitter handles, anything like that? Uh, we are on Instagram under Braveheart Retreats. I gave up on Twitter a while ago because people are just mean. I just, I can't do it. Um, and we LinkedIn. are also Get on over Facebook. LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, we are. I'm on LinkedIn and uh, right. I'm under my name for LinkedIn, Jean Campbell. Right. Um, and also we are on Facebook, Braveheart Retreats. Retreats. Perfect. So, so I absolutely want to follow up with you on another show, not just about this more in detail, but uh, psychodrama and get really some deep dives on that. So expect, expect my people to reach out to your people, which means I'm going to call you, but we're, <laughs> but I really want to follow up with your phenomenal show. I'm, I'm so excited and got my own two pages of notes out of your conversation. So and I'm a uh, huge is... fan of West Coast Symposium. I'm a huge fan of C4. I will be presenting at the conference in December. Um, they do amazing conferences, really high clinical quality, and they're a lot of fun. They it's really just, are. it's a mutually supportive environment. They're a great organization. Well, I, wonderful and virtual hugs to you. I wish we were locked in a hotel room right now. That sounds weird, but I just, just so, <laughs> because usually my beyond risk and back podcast is in like this fishbowl out there and, and I get yeah. to see everybody walk by and connect with you right after we record and have some really good personal one-on-one -on -one time, but we're going to follow up and, uh, and I'm going to connect with you and, and do some more shows with you. Really, really good stuff. I look forward to it. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, stay on the line for a quick second while I get us signed off. So I, I love this show. I love the idea of the positive psychology, uh, the, the uh, learned optimism, the strength-based conversation, not just with children, but with a couple. Can you imagine how potent where the entire session keeps them focused on why is this struggle you're having so insightful? What's the payoff? I know we're focused on the cost of all this behavior and all this struggle. What's the payoff? And even if the payoff is I'm getting help, that's, that's pretty massive. That's a pretty massive payoff. So really parents, teachers, and clinicians listening to the show, take the time to look into positive psychology because it's a game changer I know when we start to educate our parents and to look at their kids' behavior and say, not only does this make sense, how could they have chosen anything else? How could we blame them for what they've done? And it's the same with parents. When, when we make all the enabling mistakes and we make the codependent mistakes, when we meet parents, their kids are alive 
because of what those parents have done. As bad as it might have been, the kids are alive. And so here we are. Now we can do more work. My thanks to Deepin Productions uh, for producing this show and Your Cause Consulting to make sure the show gets in front of the right people. My thanks to the Silver Sponsors that I mentioned in the middle of our show and C4 Events for keeping me on their team and a part of this incredible process. My guest, Gene Campbell, and of course, Mental Health News Radio, who's been pushing the show all over the world to 12 million listeners listen to Mental Health News Radio Network. And I'm so blessed to be a great part of that. Parents, remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships and support team second, and your children third, because that's how you're gonna do your best work with your children. We will talk again next week.